Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The subject of our discussion this morning is entitled Feast Days versus the New Covenant. And with a title like that, I guess you straight away know what I'm going to talk about. And so if you think you do, I hope you don't switch off as a result. Uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the feast days today and, and uh, why I do not believe that the evidence in the scripture supports the fact that they belong in the new covenant. Now, the feasts is, is one of those issues that uh, more recently I have encountered quite regularly uh, and I've been asked a lot of questions about it, uh, particularly of late. Uh, especially among us as, as believers in the truth about God, you know? And so it's something that I have had to, to study, I've had to examine, I've had to look at with, a, with an open and willing desire to accept it and adopt it if it was truth. And so uh, I want to share with you a little bit of the results of my study. Feast keeping is seen as something that by many people, it's seen as a requirement or something that God expects us to do in these days. And uh, we want to examine that particular claim as well. Other people uh, feel that uh, feast keeping is something that is uh, innocent and totally optional. You know, if people want to do it, they can do it. If they don't want to do it, they don't have to do it. Uh, that's how some people feel. So we want to look at that a little bit. But in looking at this issue, I realized, and probably in, in an audience like this, there's people who probably believe in keeping the feast and people who probably don't believe in keeping the feast. So inevitably, I'm going to have to be uh, very careful because my intent is not to step on anyone's toes. When we're dealing with this issue, I want to, I want to clarify. I'm not dealing with any individuals or referring to any particular person. I'm strictly going to be talking about the theological position, okay, about the belief. Now... Uh, there is, there is no question about it that, that certain people who hold that belief might feel this is a, an attack against them or, or I'm going to rant against the feasts. Now here's another one going on about against the feast. If, if you believe in the feast, please, I pray, don't just switch off and think I'm going to go ranting against them. I hope to present a systematic, logical case for why the feasts do not belong in the new covenant. And I would by all means welcome your comments and feedback afterwards. So, so please do not take it personally. I just want to clarify that because these days, unfortunately, many times one is misunderstood and, and people think, you know, talking against them or, or going on about something uh, personally against them. That's not the case. And uh, I'm actually quite thankful for, for my keep, feast keeping friends and I have a number of feast keeping friends. I'm thankful because as a result of my discussion and interaction with them and, and some of the challenges that they put to me, uh, it has forced me to study the issue and it has actually clarified a lot of things in my mind. Uh, it actually helped me understand the issue much better than I did before. I, I feel I have a much better grasp uh, of it as a result of that. So I'm thankful for the study and for the challenges that I faced and for the, uh, you know, some of the questions that I've been asked that I've had to go look and find an answer for. And so I want to share some of these findings uh, with you today. And so this is really what the, the feast-keeping argument or the feast-keeping position boils down to. It is that God expects us as his people today to keep the feasts. There are many different ways and means where that position is shared. Some people share that belief in a very appealing, nice, inviting manner. Some other people, perhaps they're a little bit more 
uh, a bit, bit less polished perhaps even with the truth about God there's people like that you know what I'm talking about and and you know it's it's presented as this is something you must do or else you know uh, you're, you're sinning or or you're ignoring God's uh, requirement uh, whatever the way it is presented that's not what I'm going to be dealing with I want to deal with the core question at the core of the feast keeping position the feast keeping theology is this belief is this understanding that God expects us to keep the feasts today that's the question we want to ask does he does the Bible teach that God has this expectation or God has this this requirement from his people today this is what we want to examine this is what I want to focus on today so like I said I'm not going to be ranting and raving against the feasts I'm going to just hopefully present a case from the scriptures uh, in Exodus chapter 12 we find recorded here the origin of the feast days my tie is is out of sync with the thank you all right <laughs> sorry it's not aligned with the it does float because the mics are hanging off it so here let's tuck it in how about that is that a bit better okay I know some of these things someone might be watching the DVD and can really get throw him off the whole thing because something's out so we want to we want to accommodate everyone so the origin we find the origin of the feasts the very first time ever in the scriptures that the feasts are mentioned is in Exodus chapter 12 and this is what says here uh, verse 11 and thus shall ye eat it speaking of the Passover of course with your loins girded your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand and ye shall eat it in haste it is the Lord's Passover and then verse 14 says and this day shall be unto you for a memorial and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever this is the very first time in the inspired account that we find the ordinance of the feast of the Passover given it did not exist before this time whatsoever there is absolutely no evidence for its existence before that time no record or no evidence and of course the other feasts followed naturally after that where God revealed them and instituted them in Sinai and uh, this is a very significant point this account here and, and I'm going to revisit it in a little while but I don't want us to miss this point like you know looking at the issue of the feast this is the first instant inst instance where we find it recorded in the scriptures as a matter of fact not only that but God gave a certain instruction in relation to the time when he instituted this particular ordinance the ordinance of the Passover the feast of Passover this is what he said verse 26 and it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you what mean ye by this service that ye shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over in the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses and the people bowed the head and worshiped this is what the children of Israel were instructed to teach their children when the children would ask mommy daddy what, what are we doing why are we doing this what, what's this all about this is what they were inst to instruct them they were to instruct them as to the origin and the reason for keeping this feast they would tell the children that this feast began at the exodus when the angel came and passed over our houses when we put blood on the door and so every Hebrew, Hebrew boy growing up in Israel would know, if you were to go ask him, you know, what's this Passover? Can you tell me about it? Oh, mommy or daddy told me that we do this because God gave it to us at the Exodus when we left Egypt. Or something along these lines. You with me? 
this is a very significant point to keep in mind because this is what the Hebrews were instructed to teach their children. <clears throat> now, uh, in, in looking at this, at this question, there are a number of, of uh, popular verses that are used to promote the idea that uh, the feasts are something that is of significance and importance and that they actually predate the Exodus. Now, I'm going to look at, them, at some of them. Uh, one of the ones that uh, I commonly hear is Genesis 1.14. It says, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And the word seasons there that's been highlighted is from the Hebrew word ma'at. And it means an appointed place or appointed time or a meeting. Later on, uh, when God gave the feasts, uh, the feasts in the Hebrew uh, or the word feast in the Hebrew is called ma'at. And so the argument goes that because the feasts are ma'at, and Ma'ad here is mentioned in Genesis 1.14. Therefore, the feasts were actually ordained right there in Genesis 1.14. In other words, when God put the lights in the sky, it was to tell us the time of the feasts. Because seasons means feasts. This is the, the reasoning behind that particular explanation. Uh, now, the reason why I think this is a faulty way to understand this scripture is that the word ma'ad does not always mean feast. The word ma'ad simply means, as it says here, an appointed time or appointed place or even a congregation. That's how it's translated most of the time. And I want to use the, the Bible to explain that to us just so we can understand and then we see what is actually being said in this particular verse. Because it says, how you would determine these seasons is by the lights that God has set in the sky, the greater light and of course the lesser light, the sun and the moon. Uh, but before we go to a few verses, I want to ask a few questions. If indeed God had instituted the feasts then and there, how would God explain the feast of Passover to Adam who has not yet sinned? You with me? Mm -hmm. You see, the feasts were actually instituted after sin and for sin, because of sin, due to sin. They did not exist in a perfect, sinless world. And so, to me, it does not really make sense to say the feasts were there from before sin based on this verse. So then we have to have a reasonable answer or an explanation for this verse. What does this verse actually mean? Well, there's a few examples in the same book, how the same author uses it. In Genesis 17, verse 21, God speaking to Abraham, But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And the word there, translated set time, is the same Hebrew word, ma'ad. God was not telling Abraham about a feast. Ma'ad simply means an appointment, a particular set appointment. How would Abraham know when the next year would occur? By the movement of the heavenly bodies, the lights in the sky. So the lights in the sky would indicate to him when the next season or the next year or the next appointed time came along. God made an appointed time of one year with Abraham. You with me? There was no feast, in, there was nothing to do with any feasts here. <coughs> this is how the word is used. It's not the only time, there's many other times, but I'll just use a couple to illustrate, to illustrate the point here. Here's another one, Exodus 9, 5. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. This is Moses speaking, or the, what Moses was told to, to uh, tell Pharaoh. 
Again, the word set time there comes from the Hebrew, Ma'ad. How were they to know when that set time would arrive? When the heavenly lights went down once and came up, then you know it is tomorrow. It's not a feast. You with me? And so the use of the word in the scriptures is not exclusively always referring to a feast or a festival. It does mean that sometimes, but not all the time. So we cannot use that verse in Genesis 1.14 to prove that the feasts were instituted at creation. And that's, uh, that's just a few examples of that. Uh, another example that I hear about a lot is uh, Genesis 19.3, the story of Lot. And uh, this is what it says. And he pressed upon them greatly. This is Lot to the two angels who came to Sodom and Gomorrah. And they turned unto him and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. And the reasoning or the argument here uh, goes that uh, Lot here baked unleavened bread, and he made a feast. Therefore, this was the feast of Passover, or unleavened bread. Passover and unleavened bread are, are more or less the same thing. Uh, that's, that's the reasoning here. And, and it, initially it sounds, well, yeah, there's the word feast there, and there is the unleavened bread. Why would Lot bake unleavened bread if it wasn't the feast of unleavened bread? That's, that's the argument, or that's the reasoning. Now, if you ask any lady who, who bakes bread, she will tell you why you would bake unleavened bread when you have guests who drop in unannounced for a meal. The reason is very simple. It's because it's much faster. This, this really has nothing to do with the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover was instituted hundreds of years later. They didn't know anything about it. And so uh, this is not something that demonstrates that the Feast of Passover was present or was instituted at that time. Uh, to be honest, this is really a misuse of, of, of the verses. This is not the point. The point here is just he made them a meal. And the meal used bread that was not leavened. This was a common item of food in those days. Not everybody who ate unleavened bread was celebrating the, the feast of Passover. It was a common item of food. Everybody used that. You know, sometimes they'd use leaven, sometimes they'd use unleavened. The reason why that God told them uh, to make the unleavened bread in the feast of Passover because it was to symbolize and represent something. God used it for that. And he used it for the practical fact that they were leaving very quickly as well. And so there is, there is a, a bit of both. So that's, that's as far as that reason. It's, it's not really that, that complicated. Another one is uh, this one in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 5, speaking about Abraham. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And uh, again here, the, the, the reasoning is the word statutes here is later on in the scriptures used to refer to feasts. And so if the Bible says, Abraham kept my statutes, therefore he must have kept the feasts. That's the reasoning. Uh, again, did Abraham keep the feast of Passover? Absolutely impossible for him to have kept a feast that only came into existence hundreds of years after he died. The very name of the feast Passover is indicative of the event that happened in Egypt when the angel passed over. Abraham knew nothing of the feast of Passover. Well, someone might say, well, what statutes did he keep? He kept the statutes that he knew about, not the ones that he didn't know about. 
not the ones that came hundreds of years later or were instituted after his death. And it doesn't say anything about uh, feasts or festivals or anything of the sort in this particular verse. I'm just, I'm just going at some of these verses and I want to be as honest as I can because when talking about a position or differing with someone's position, I really like to make sure that I understand what's being said, the reasons for the position, so as not to misrepresent it and not to just you know, use really poor, weak uh, arguments or, or reasoning that is not even convincing. That really damages things. Unfortunately, people who believe in the Trinity do that with us all the time, right? I think we all know that. So all these people say the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. And, and, and Christ is, is created and all of that stuff. And we think, you know, if they only understood what we'd say and what, what we actually believe and what we're saying, half of the things they say, they wouldn't say. And it, it becomes quite frustrating. So if in any way I have misunderstood or misrepresent, uh, don't, don't shoot me, talk to me after. I'm, I'm really trying to do my best to give it a fair hearing because I have looked at the topic in detail. I've talked to a lot of people about it. I've read books about it. So I've, I've made myself as familiar as I could with the topic so as to avoid this misrepresentation, just using really weak and sometimes really silly arguments to dispel something. I really want to give it a, a fair hearing and a fair case uh, to make a fair case. Uh, as to why I don't believe they uh, belong in the new covenant. Another example is the example of uh, uh, recorded for us here in Psalm 81. And here the, it, it refers to Joseph. I want to read this verse because this verse is, is one that's used a lot. I've heard a lot about this verse. Verse 3 to 5, blow up the trumpet in the new moon in the time appointed on our solemn feast day. For this was a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. This he ordained in Joseph for a testimony when he went out through the land of Egypt where I heard a language that I understood not. And uh, of course here it says that Joseph, this was instituted you know, in Joseph, ordained in Joseph. Therefore Joseph, when he was in Egypt, kept the feast of the trumpets. And uh, and the argument, of course, is, see, this was a, a long time before the Exodus or Mount Sinai. And so the feasts existed before that time. Here is Joseph keeping this feast in Egypt. Uh, unfortunately, this is not what the verse is saying. And I'll show you clearly what it means. When it talks about Joseph here, it's not talking about the man Joseph. It's not talking about the individual that we know as Joseph. So I say, well, what are you talking about? The same author, the author of this psalm is Asaph. He wrote another psalm just before, Psalm 80, and he explains what he means. Notice what it says. Psalm 80, verse 1. Uh, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims shine forth. Joseph is a name for the whole nation of Israel. God uses that a number of times. Sometimes God calls Israel Ephraim, or Manasseh, or Israel, or Joseph. And so this is how Asaph writes his songs. So when he talks about Joseph, he's not talking about the individual, because it says here, thou that leadest Joseph like a, like a flock. So there's not one person here. Joseph is the name of the whole Hebrew nation. It's used repeatedly like that. And so when we go back to that verse that we read, and we read it carefully, we find that this is what it's talking about. Blow the trumpet in the new moon in the time appointed on our solemn feast days, for this was a statute for Israel. That's the nation, not the individual Jacob, who is also known as Israel. That's the nation of Israel. For this was a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. This is ordained in 
Joseph or in Israel. He's, he's writing a song, right? So he's being poetic about it. So he's not trying to use the same word all the time. So he refers to the nation by different names. Joseph is one of these names. And then he says, for a testimony, when he went out throughout the land of Egypt. You know what, that, what event that is? It's not when Joseph was traveling around Egypt. It's when the nation of Israel exited Egypt. Let's keep reading and just find out. Where I heard a language I understood not. Next verse is verse 6. I removed his shoulder from the burden. What's that talking about? When the Hebrews were delivered from being the slaves of Egypt. Joseph was not, uh, he did not have the burden removed from his shoulder, but the nation of Israel did. His hands were delivered from the pot. Same thing. Thou callest in trouble and I delivered thee. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. I proved thee at the waters of Meribah. When is that? After the Exodus. Correct? And so Joseph here is not the individual. This is actually the Exodus. So according to this verse, it's telling us that the trumpet and the new moon and the times appointed and the feasts, these were ordained in Israel or for Israel at the Exodus. That's what this verse is, that's what this passage is telling us. It actually confirms what we read earlier in Exodus chapter 12, that these things were given to the nation of Israel at the Exodus, and in more detail, of course, at Sinai, and never before. That's why when the Israelites were instructed to teach their children as to the origin of the Passover, they were to tell them it started at the Exodus. They were not to tell them, oh, because Genesis 1.14 says, and God appointed it there. They were not to tell them because Abraham kept it, we keep it. They were not to tell them because Lot kept it, we keep it. They were not to tell them because Joseph kept it, we keep it. They were to say that it was instituted at the Exodus and not before. Unfortunately, the feast-keeping position teaches that the origin of the Passover is contrary to what God told the Israelites to teach their children. And to me, this is a grave inconsistency. You, you see what I'm saying? And so this is why the example of teaching the children is very, very significant because, like I said, you know, if you ask any Hebrew child about Passover, they're not going to tell you Abraham kept it or Joseph kept it or any, if they were taught properly by their parents according to the scripture. But today uh, we have a very different teaching as far as that's concerned. And so <clears throat> that's why we need to keep these things in mind. And so this, the, the, the feasts, these uh, particular statutes were given to Israel as part of that whole package that we know as the old covenants. They have no uh, origin, they have no existence before that time, as far as the inspired record and account is concerned. And as such, they belong to that same system of types and shadows, as we shall see uh, as we go along. You see, the whole system that was given at Mount Sinai was one package, one complete package. It's called the Old Covenant. That's what the people and God entered into, God and the people entered into a covenant together, and Moses wrote it all down in the book. It's one package that has all these particular elements. Uh, as we saw, uh, the package included a number of things, not just the feasts. But I want to focus particularly on the feast because, like I said, that's a question today that's asked a lot. Uh, now, why is there an attempt to, to try and find the feasts before the Exodus? Because I think a lot of people are aware that if the feasts begin at the Exodus and at Sinai, that automatically says that they were not designed 
to last forever. Because they now belong to that system that was temporary. And so this is why I think a lot of people try and find the feasts before then to try and liberate them from this package and therefore maintain their existence after that package has come to an end. You with me? This is why we looked at some of the examples and there is really, to be honest, there's really no case for the existence of the feast before the Exodus and Mount Sinai. The very name of the first festival, Passover, is indication enough of that. Now, I, this could finish the story right here and say, oh, there you go. The feast belonged to that system. All we have to look for is if that system, when did that system finish? Therefore, the feast finished with it. But uh, I want to go a little bit extra just to, to demonstrate uh, for people who are truly and genuinely honest. There are a lot of people who truly and genuinely and honestly believe that God wants us to keep the feast today. They do that many times because they believe that this is the right thing to do. So I want to, I want to, uh, you know, go to, to great detail just to demonstrate what the scriptures really teach. There are people who, uh, like I said, are honest about that. And so I don't want to be less honest in, in dealing with it and just give it a light, you know, brush it away lightly. Leviticus 23 is one other popular place that talks about the feasts. And I'm going to go into fifth gear now and just speed up a little bit because uh, I just noticed the time. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, Concerning the feast of the Lord, which he shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation. Ye shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. And the argument here and the reasoning is the Sabbath day is mentioned as the first of the feasts, and the feasts and the Sabbath are tied together, they belong together, they stand or they fall together. And since we are still to keep the seventh day Sabbath, therefore we are to also keep the feasts which were given here and linked with the Sabbath. That's, that's the argument, that's the, that's the reasoning here, uh, that since God mentioned, mentioned them together, they should be together. Uh, we saw earlier that feast means a set time or an appointment. The Sabbath indeed was the first feast or the first set time. It was the time for the Sabbath was set when? At creation. It was a set time for worship, for meeting and fellowshipping with God. So there is nothing uh, you know, wrong in calling the Sabbath a feast. And then the time came when God now was going to add other set times or other appointments for worship as well that he refers to as feasts. And these were going to have some similar aspects to the Sabbath in that some of those days no work would be done. And as a matter of fact, some of the days of the feast would be called Sabbaths or annual Sabbaths, as we usually refer to them. And so this is why God mentions the Sabbath here, because he's mentioning other appointments that are similar to it. But God in no way is linking them together or marrying them together. One existed before the other. I want to do some. Uh, I want to show some some contrast between the two. Why the two do not really belong together, and the two do not stand or fall together at all. That's not the intention of this passage. Uh, I want to compare the seven-day Sabbath with the feast days and their annual Sabbaths. That's the weekly Sabbath and the feast days. The Sabbath was instituted at creation before sin. The feast days and their Sabbaths were instituted at the Exodus 
well after sin and because of sin, and in particular in, at Sinai is really when God elaborated on them. At the Exodus, he basically just told them about Passover. He didn't say much else. So when they got to Sinai, then he gave them the more elaborate system and revelation about all these things. The feasts would not exist if sin did not come in, brothers and sisters. It is because of sin. It actually gives a revelation of God's plan as to what he will do and when he will do certain things to deal with the sin problem. That's what the feasts are about. And so when God began to deal with the sin problem, the purpose and the function of the feast as prophesying that time came to an end, as hopefully we shall see. Anyway, God rested on the Sabbath day, right? We have no record ever of God resting on a feast day or a, fest, uh, a Sabbath of a feast. God blessed and sanctified the Sabbath day, the seventh day Sabbath. We have no record whatsoever that God blessed any feast day. And uh, this is a very important point. The feast days are not blessed days like the seventh day Sabbath. They are not sanctified days like the seventh day Sabbath. They are in a different category altogether. The Sabbath was made for man. Jesus said that. The feasts were made for the Jews, for the, Israel, the nation of Israel. They're actually referred to in the scriptures as Jewish feasts and festivals. And yes, there is no question that God calls them my feasts in Leviticus because he designed them, he originated them, but he gave them to a group of people to belong to them. The Sabbath day points back to creation, whereas the feast days pointed forward to a coming savior. And we see that, you know, when Paul says that Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Christ is a complete package. Uh, the seventh-day Sabbath preceded the sacrificial system. Another important point I want to keep in mind here. Whereas the feast days were later added to the sacrificial system. God instituted the sacrificial system when? Remember? Okay, as soon as Adam sinned, that's right. God told them to bring a lamb and offer it, and this was to point forward to a coming Savior. The Sabbath existed before sin, before the sacrificial system was given. The feast days, brothers and sisters, were instituted long after the sacrificial system was in place. And that's a very significant point, as, as we will come to that a little later. The Sabbath was not a shadow or a type. The feast days and their Sabbaths are referred to as shadows and types, as we shall see. Uh, the Sabbath was not tied to a calendar in any way, shape, or form. The Sabbath was simply based on the count of days. Every seventh day is the Sabbath. Uh, this point also helps a lot of people get caught up in the whole lunar Sabbath idea, uh, which, which is another strange notion, but I'm not going to talk too much about that. And the idea basically is that the Sabbath is tied to a calendar. It's not. And so when you see the feasts that are given in, uh, in Leviticus 23, even the way to calculate those feasts is different to how the Sabbath is calculated. They were based on a calendar. They were tied to a calendar. They count months and certain days in the months are the feast days. The Sabbath is not like that. Part of the reason why a lot of people accept the lunar Sabbath as based on a calendar is because of its association with the feasts. They say, well, if the feasts are calculated this way, well, therefore the Sabbath has to be calculated in the same way. It's not. It's a totally different institution based on a different method to calculate. It's just on the cycle of days. That's why all this talk about the Gregorian calendar and Julian calendar and, 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 and I don't know what calendar, astral calendar, lunar calendar, whatever. It's not relevant to the Sabbath. Fourth commandment has no calendars, right? It just says count the days. It's not that complicated. The Sabbath is global. 
whereas the feasts were tied to Jerusalem and to the temple. They were tied to a particular geographical location. You were not able to keep the feast as an Israelite unless three times a year you went on the pilgrimage feast to Jerusalem and to the temple. If you stayed at home, it didn't count. You with me? There's a, there's a very important distinction there. And therefore, the Sabbath is moral and eternal, whereas the feast days were designed to be temporary and ceremonial. And I know I'm making a claim there, so we're going to see if that's the case or not, because uh, I didn't put any verses there yet. <clears throat> so when Adam sinned, as we said, God instructed him to sacrifice a lamb, a symbol of the coming Savior. And this type from the gates of Eden would last all the way till the Savior did come. And of course, this was passed on from father to son, and the patriarchs there, the antediluvians, they knew that from the gates of Eden, they received this promise of a savior in this sacrifice. And so Abraham sacrificed, Isaac sacrificed, and Jacob sacrificed. But they did not know anything about feast days. You see, it was later on that God added to the sacrifices the feasts, which indicated certain times and events of things that will happen in the plan of salvation. Now, the, the reason why I'm, I'm emphasizing that is because a lot, of, uh, a lot of the times people say, well, you know, uh, the feasts, they had sacrifices on them. Well, the Sabbath had sacrifices too. And so we still keep the Sabbath without the sacrifices. So we can therefore keep the feast without the sacrifices and try and uh, disengage or separate the feasts from the sacrifices. Uh, I'll tell you now, you cannot do that. You cannot do this. We'll see why in the scriptures why you cannot do that. The Sabbath was never married to the sacrifices, as we shall see. Let me illustrate that. And, and uh, I like illustrations, if you haven't figured that out yet. The Sabbath was given in Eden, right? And then at the fall, sacrifices were instituted. And no doubt, when people would come to worship on the Sabbath, part of their worship would have involved offering sacrifices, an expression of their faith in the coming Savior. But the Sabbath existed before sacrifices and independent of sacrifices. Later on, God instituted the sacrificial system. And then at the Exodus and at Sinai, God added other elements to the sacrificial system that was already in place. He added feasts, he added a sanctuary, and he added a priesthood, among other things. And these three elements, brothers and sisters, were all tied and married to the sacrifices. The priesthood, its purpose and function was to offer sacrifices. You can't have a priest with nothing to offer, right? The sanctuary was the place where you offered these sacrifices. And the feasts were the special times and seasons and occasions to offer these Sacrifices, they were married and tied to this system and they were actually subservient to it, to the sacrificial system. The entire Jewish economy revolved around the sacrificial system or around the symbol for Christ. That's, that's what it was all about. Uh, and so this, uh, this particular point as far as the feast being for sacrifice, I want to read this verse from the same uh, chapter, Leviticus 23. These are the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and a drink offering, everything upon his day. Notice what the purpose of the feast here is, according to this verse. It is to do what? 
to offer an offering. So I'll ask you a question. Of the two, which is more important and significant? The feasts or the sacrifices? The sacrifices. Let me ask it this way. Can you keep the feast without offering a sacrifice when God gave this instruction? No. Could you keep the sacrifices without having a feast? There was a time when these sacrifices existed that you can sacrifice without having a feast. So of the two, one is more important than the other. One is attached to the other in this relationship. And there's a reason why I'm saying that. And there's a reason why God set it up this way, as we shall see. And the reason and the purpose for this entire system that God gave, Hebrews 9 and verse 10 tells us about the first covenant and the tabernacle which stood only in meats and in drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. What's the time of Reformation? The coming of Christ. It was a temporary system. God instituted a temporary system on Mount Sinai to last until the seed should come. And this is what the time of Reformation is talking about. Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come. That's the first coming of Christ. To whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. That's the time of reformation. And at such a time, this system would come to an end. And the verse that indicates that to us is Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Now, many times I have heard this verse quoted and used to prove that the sacrifices and the oblations ceased. And that's the only thing that ceased and nothing else. But brothers and sisters, when God talks about the sacrifices and oblations, he is talking about the primary symbol that represents Christ and everything that was attached to it along the way. God does not have to spell out every single thing that was attached to the sacrificial system. When that went, everything attached with it went. I'll put it here in our illustration. When he causes the sacrifice and oblation to cease. If the sacrifice goes, do you still keep the seventh day Sabbath? Because it pre-existed the sacrificial system, right? It stands on its own. It was never attached to the sacrificial system. It was never dependent on the sacrificial system. But when the sacrifices go, does the priesthood go? Well, what's the priest going to offer? He has nothing else to offer. So this Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood that God instituted at Mount Sinai, goes with the sacrifice. So in Daniel, God does not have to say also the, the priesthood is also ceased. That's included in the sacrifices ceasing. So that goes. What about the sanctuary? Same reasoning. Of course it goes. God doesn't have to say, oh, by the way, and the sanctuary also will cease. When the sacrifice is ceased, everything subservient to it and attached to it automatically goes. So what about the feasts? Or will they stay? That's the argument. That is not consistent. That does not make sense, brothers and sisters. The feasts were dependent on the sacrifices. The feasts are actually included in that verse. When God brought to an end the system of sacrifices and oblations, with it goes the days that were given to offer certain sacrifices on. And so this is why the time of the Reformation is the time when these things came to an end. These were all ceremonial types that pointed forward to the coming of the Savior. This is what Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10.1. I'm speeding up here because uh, I just want to get through everything we're talking about. Okay, you still with me so far? Hebrews 10.1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. When he talks about the law here, he's talking about the first covenant. 
The law having a shadow of, first, uh, of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So the law had a system of shadows, things that pointed forward until the Messiah or the seed would come. And in verse 9, we read this yesterday, we'll read it again. Then said he, referring to Christ, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he might establish the second. The first being that first covenant that had all these shadows. He was the light of the world. When he came, the shadows ceased. The types ceased. The entire system that is referred to by the term, the sacrifices and oblations, it all, the whole thing came to an end. The entire system of types and shadows. And this is what we looked at. When he, take, when he cometh, he taketh away the first, that he might establish the second. The first being the first covenant, and the second being the second or the new covenant. So here's the question. Were the feast days part of this system of shadows or not? The answer is yes. They're actually referred to as shadows. They were given at that time with that system. God married them together. He gave them with that package. And we need to have some serious uh, authority to separate them from that package where God put them together. There is no evidence that warrants uh, the separation of the feast from that particular system. But they refer to as shadows in the New Testament. This is a popular verse. I'm not going to spend much time on it. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now I have read many books, uh, whole studies, and even books uh, dedicated to explaining this verse. And the explanation usually goes, uh, you know, against the natural, most obvious reading of the verse. I'm not going to go into great detail, but all we learn from this verse is simply the, that the feast days, which is what the holidays are, and the new moons are called shadows, correct? That's what Paul says. And in Hebrews, Paul says, that system of shadows was only temporary. He uh, taketh away the first, that he might establish the second. And the Sabbath days here, of course, that is referring to the Sabbaths of the feasts, which were shadows. Because the seventh-day Sabbath was not a shadow. It was not a type. It was a memorial of creation, a pre-sin institution. The shadows were post-sin institutions that were instituted after sin and for sin and to point forward certain events that would transpire in the dealing with sin that the Messiah would accomplish. And so Paul is basically telling them, don't let anyone bother you about things that are shadows. That's basically what he's saying. Don't let anyone give you grief. Don't let anyone judge you about these things. They are shadows, but the body or the substance is of Christ. I'll be happy to talk to you more about this verse because I know there are books written about it. So, I, and I've read them. I've read a lot of them. I'm quite familiar with a lot of the ideas that exist about this verse. But you can, whatever conclusion, whatever explanation, you cannot deny the fact that the feast days here are referred to as shadows, and shadows ceased according to the Book of Hebrews. And and so the argument. Uh, oh well, let me illustrate that quickly here. Uh, the old covenant. Was, it says here, the law having a shadow of good things to come. And some of the shadows that are listed for us in inspiration are holy days, new moons, and Sabbaths. 
They were part of that first covenant. And the Bible says, He taketh away the first that He might establish the second. The second has no shadows in it. The second has the light of the world. That's why the previous one had shadows. And you follow the shadow until you get to the substance and where the light is shining. That, that's, the, that's the illustration that the, the scripture gives us here. That's, that's the picture it's trying uh, to portray. Another popular verse in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. We refer to that already. But it says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And uh, usually, you know, someone might say, or in, in discussions with people, or, or the feast-keeping theology basically says, well, you know, all you, all you said is good, but Paul says here, let us keep the feast. So we will keep the feast. We will do what Paul says. So this is why we keep the feast. And, and what does Paul mean? Uh, the problem in Corinth, brothers and sisters, was not whether they were keeping the feast or not. This was not their issue. The issue in Corinth was sin in the camp. Remember some guy with, with his mother or his, his, uh, his stepmother or something, there was, there was a sin issue. And Paul was telling them to deal with this sin issue. He's telling them, listen, what, purge out the leaven. Get rid of sin from among you. He is using the language of the feast to illustrate a spiritual truth. The language of the feast that he uses is symbolic. He's not talking about literal leaven. He's not talking about real leaven that you put in the bread. He's not telling them, get rid of that. He's telling them, get rid of sin out of the camp. And he says, the reason for that is Christ, our, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Always, not just for a particular time period. Christ is not just our Passover for a week. He is always our Passover. He sacrificed for us. It's because Christ now has come and fulfilled that. Let us live the reality and the fulfillment of what he accomplished by, therefore, let us keep the feast. So what he's talking about here is not a literal keeping of one week. If you look it up in the Greek, it actually means let us keep on keeping a feast. Let us keep a continual feast. In other words, he's saying, let us live our life because Christ is our Passover. Let us live our life as a perpetual feast, free from leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness and sin. He's using the language of the feast to illustrate a spiritual truth. It wasn't only to last for a week. It was to be their experience from then on. Because Paul is not trying to institute feasts that he calls elsewhere shadows. You with me? He's contradicting himself otherwise. And so this is what the contextual understanding and explanation of this verse is. Uh, that's how we are to keep the feasts. Today, the, the, the feast today. We are all to keep this feast with the unleavened bread of... Uh, Truth, you know, in sincerity and truth, not with wickedness or malice. And there are a few instances that uh, the Apostle Paul, we find in the book of Acts, kept the feasts as far as he said, I want to go to Jerusalem by all means to keep this feast. And one time uh, Luke talks about uh, tarrying after the days of unleavened bread, and then they continued traveling. And sometimes these examples of Paul are used to, uh, to say, well, if Paul kept the feasts, uh, so should we. And... Uh, you have to keep in mind something. I'm not going to go to every verse, but there are certain principles you have to keep in mind. We can't just take certain passages or certain occurrences in isolation of everything that we find in the scriptures. Paul kept the feast because he was a Jew. Paul was also circumcised. And Paul circumcised Timothy. 
Does that mean we go and circumcise uh, all the males in the, in the church now? Nobody does it. Well, I hope nobody does that or teaches that or believe, believes that. We don't do circumcision anymore, right? But Paul did that. You see, we have to understand that Paul as a Jew and the whole Jewish nation, the feasts and festivals had become to them national holidays. Even the irreligious of them kept feasts as a national holiday. It was time off. And Paul maintained that and continued that. And the reason he did that to go to Jerusalem was so that he could have an effective ministry. And the example people used to say, well, but Paul kept the feast in Philippi. Philippi was a Gentile city. Therefore, it proves that, you know, feasts are for Gentiles. There's a number of assumptions made there. You don't know that there were no Jews living in Philippi. Was there a synagogue in Philippi? Very likely. The Jews were dispersed all over the Roman Empire. And so Paul keeping the feast of unleavened bread or Passover, spending that time with the believers in Philippi, does not establish the feast as part of the new covenant. Because he spelled it out for us later on. As a matter of fact, his companions did not stay to keep that feast. And so it wasn't an issue of the feast is a requirement to keep. These are not the examples that Paul has set in his behavior. That's not the point that is being made. But Paul was a Jew, and there's more on that a little later. I think I might will talk a little bit more in detail about that. But uh, I don't want to miss uh, some of my slides here, and I'm almost there, but let's, let's keep going. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. I want to I spend just a few minutes on this particular point because to me this really clarifies it very well. Brethren, he says, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And see here, uh, Paul is saying that when a covenant is confirmed, it cannot be revoked and it cannot be added to. And then in verse 17, he says, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ or to Christ, that's the covenant that God spoke to Abraham, which we know as the everlasting covenant. We talked about that yesterday. The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Now, I, I really want to explain this because I don't want you to miss what Paul is saying here. Paul is basically says, is saying, look, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he confirmed it with an oath. The law, or the system that was given at Sinai, the law which came 430 years later, cannot disannul this promise. And it cannot add to it. Let me put it on a chart here to help me and you see it clearly. God made a promise to Abraham, right? The promise of, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then he confirmed this promise with an oath. God says, I swear by myself, Abraham, I'm going to do this thing. He confirmed it by an oath. Paul is saying, when God made this promise to Abraham and confirmed it, the law, which came at Sinai, which came 430 years later, cannot disannul and cannot add to the covenant that's already confirmed. You know what that means, brothers and sisters? It means that the feast days are 430 years late. For the new covenant. They are 430 years late. 
They were instituted 430 years after the new covenant was confirmed with Abraham by an oath. Therefore, according to the argument of Paul, you cannot take something that was added 430 years later and try and shove it in a covenant that's already confirmed. You cannot do that. That's what he's saying. Because the problem in Galatia was they were reverting to some of the things that were in this law. So he's telling them, what are you guys doing? Didn't God confirm the covenant of salvation to Abraham? So a law that was given 430 years later cannot disannul that, cannot add to that. That is why we find that there is no existence for the feasts before Sinai. And that is why that fact and that argument alone, as far as I'm concerned, totally disproves the feasts from belonging in the new covenant. Because the new covenant that Christ confirmed here is the same covenant that he promised to Abraham. It did not have any feasts in it. It did not have any priesthood in it or any temple in it. It had what Christ would accomplish. You with me? So this point is, to me, quite significant as far as the feasts are concerned, that the feasts are 430 years late. They were not part of the Abrahamic covenant. They were part of the ceremonial system of types and shadows that was instituted at Sinai and that was to last up until the coming of the seed. That's why Christ, our Passover, is crucified or sacrificed for us that represents everything. The Passover was the primary feast uh, because it was the first feast. Everything else was based and counted from the Passover because God told them, this month shall be to you the first of months. And on the 14th day you do this and then everything else flows from that. So Christ being our Passover sacrificed for us, the sacrifice being the key type in the feasts. It's talking about the whole system, not just the sacrifice alone. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, meeting the fulfillment of the type, the whole system of types, with its sacrifices, with its days, with its different ceremonies and different instructions that were, that were to be carried out in it. And that is why the ratification of that covenant does not include the feast days. <clears throat> the cross of Christ is the marker between the shadows and the light. So uh, I, uh, I really think Paul makes an argument that is hard to overcome when he says that the law is 430 years later. And so uh, the feast keeping position, brothers and sisters, is 430 years late out of the new covenant. There is no way you can go add it to the new covenant. There is no way, whatever, uh, you know, books that are written or whatever scripture is trying to use to try and shove it or try and squeeze it into that covenant, it does not belong there. This is how God set it up. I'm simply reading to you the scripture evidence. Okay, so don't take this the wrong way or think, oh, look, he's, he's, he's just put the, his feast out of the new covenant. I didn't. God, God put them 430 years later, not me. And I think this is why a lot of people realize the weakness of the feast position if they indeed only started at Sinai. And that's why a lot of people try and put the feasts before Sinai because it lifts it from that system. And that's why we saw there's really no evidence for that whatsoever. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. For as many as of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the law, uh, sorry, in the book of the law to do them. 
Keeping part of the law and not the whole invites what? A curse, according to this verse. Paul is telling the Galatians they were, you know, wanting to go back to the works of the law. He says, listen, don't you realize if you want to go back, you can't keep some and not others. You have to keep the whole law because if you only keep some, you are inviting a curse because the Bible says, curse is every man that does not continue in all the things that are written in this book. That's the book of the law. That's the instructions that were given at Sinai, the system of law that has shadows, that has types, that has ceremonies, that has all these things. You see, because and I've heard this uh, argument a number of times, a number of times, people say, well, you know, the feasts, the feasts are different because uh, God did not spell out that the feasts were finished. And unless God says somewhere in a verse that the feasts are finished, I'm going to continue to keep them. Now, this argument sounds reasonable, and, and I've heard this argument, and it sounds good at its surface, but uh, God did show where they came to an end, because they belonged to a system of shadows and types, which all ended at the cross. And the Bible we just read said that they are shadows. So here is my question. Where can you show me that the feasts were part of the everlasting or new covenant? Where in the scriptures can you show me that the feasts belong to the new covenant? Then you will have my attention. Then you really give me something to think about. It's not there. It's 430 years late. And so to keep only the feasts part of that law and not everything else is not consistent as far as Paul is saying. This is, this is his point here. For example, uh, there are many statues, and this is the word that's used a lot. For example, the feasts are called statues, right? But the garments of the priests were also called statutes. Also, the priesthood itself is referred to as a statute, and the certain washings and ordinances were given as statutes. This is a very partial list. There are hundreds of statutes. I'm not going to go through every one, but I just want to use these as an illustration, which to me, according to the argument of Paul, shows an inconsistency. If one wants to keep a shadow, they are logically obliged to keep all shadows. If you want to keep a type, you should consistently keep all types. Nobody does these. These are statutes. These are statutes that God actually said they were to continue forever throughout your generations. I hope nobody does these. I don't know of anyone who does that, but maybe some that I don't know of. But you know what I'm talking about? The whole priesthood ceased because the sacrifices ceased, the temple ceased, and with that also the statutes that were shadows. See, a lot, there's a lot of people talk about statutes and we should keep the statutes and it's all good. Do you realize that in that old covenant, there were shadowy statutes? There were moral statutes and there were shadowy typical statutes. These are some of the shadowy statutes. The feasts also belong to the shadowy statutes. And so when it says statutes, there's many statutes that nobody keeps or can keep. And that's the whole argument of Paul. Not only that, but there was also sabbatical years. They were called statutes. And also the Jubilee year, they're called statutes. Logically, the feast keeping position should enforce the keeping also of the sabbatical year and the Jubilee year, the rest of the land and all these things. But these were shadowy statutes, brothers and sisters. So just because the feasts are referred to as statutes, and uh, many times we're told to keep statutes, it doesn't mean that we are to keep the expired 
shadowy statutes. That's not what it's talking about. The new covenant is not about shadows. It's about the substance. There's another, uh, another statute that I have not really seen people keep. And to me, this is a glaring inconsistency as far as uh, you know, the feast-keeping position. God gave for a statute that the Israelites were to write his instructions on their doorposts, on their doorposts, this is the mezuzah, and they were to write them and bind them on their hands and on their forehead. I think we all know pictures when we see some Jews who wear the, the tiflin and who wear all the, the bands of prayer. This is, where do they get this? And we look at them and think, man, these guys are strange, these guys are weird. This is from the Old Testament. This was a statute, an Old Testament statute. And so, I, thankfully, I have not seen anyone uh, does doing that, you know, when we come to church and all that, thankfully. But it's a statute of no less importance than the feast days. But it signified and represented something, as did the feast days. So we need to understand what statutes are. It's not just, you know, just because it's called statutes that automatically makes it uh, binding. The Ten Commandments are called statutes. Did you know that? They are moral statutes. So we see there's moral statutes, there's shadowy statutes. So we just need to figure out where do the feasts belong. God attached them to the whole system of sacrifice, priesthood, and temple, which were the shadowy statutes. That's where he placed them. Wow, look at the time. We're almost, uh, oh, we're almost there. Can, would it be okay to keep going? Would that be asking too much? I'll, I'll speed up even more. I kind of slowed down a little bit. Kind of got comfortable and, and got started talking. Let me speed up again, and, and, and we'll get moving. Uh, and so this is as far as, as statutes are concerned. Now, another, another point that I have found, which to me is, is really odd and bizarre, is the use of the writings of Ellen White to support the feast-keeping position. Now, I know that you know, when you believe something, you try and find as much evidence as you can for it. We all do. But honestly, to use the writings of a non-feast keeper to try and promote feast keeping tells me you really have no case, to be quite honest. If you want to prove your case, you can make some attempts from the Bible, perhaps. But to use the writings of someone that we all know, everybody agrees, she was not a feast keeper. You cannot use that to promote a behavior or a practice you do not keep. It, it's, it automatically tells me there is some twisting of her writings taking place. I'm just being honest here. I'm not trying to offend anyone. But this, this is how I feel when people say, oh, what Ellen White said and Ellen White said and, and about the statues and all that. So I want to look a little bit at what Ellen White did say, just to, to give that a fair hearing as well. So I'm not just brushing it aside and ignoring it. But, but this is what just you know, a, a kind of introduction to, to this section. Uh, as far as the using of the writings of someone who did not keep uh, the feasts. Because not only did Ellen White not keep them, she actually said that they were expired, as we shall see. Uh, let's read a few statements to that effect. While the death of Christ, as we have seen, brought the law of types and shadows, or the ceremonial law, to an end, it did not in the least detract from the dignity of the moral law or make it void. We all know that, we saw that in the Bible. We're not gonna see anything here that's uh, new or extraordinary, or extraordinary that wasn't in the Bible. But it says here, the law of types and shadows, which, are which is also referred to as the ceremonial law. Because this is a very big argument, or you know, uh, there's differences on it. Are the feast days ceremonial or moral? And there's, there's uh, a lot of 
energy and, and studies that are being put together and energy expended to try and prove that the feast days are moral and not ceremonial. And, and on the other side, people say, no, they're ceremonial. Well, wh what are they? It's easy to figure out to see where God put them. And Ellen White actually also says that. So th there's no reason to misunderstand that. But the ceremonial law is the same as the law of types and shadows. Notice what it talks here about the Passover. It refers to it as such. The Passover had been observed to commemorate the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. It had been both commem commemorative and typical, or a type, right? That's what typical means. The type had reached the antitype when Christ, the Lamb of God, without blemish, died upon the cross. And usually, and I'm aware, people read this and say, no, no, this is only referring to the sacrifice. It's not referring to the Passover event. God married the two together. By what authority do you separate them? That's my question. Where is your inspired authority to separate the feast days from the system of sacrifices and offerings? God did this. Uh, you know, like marriage. What God has joined, let no man divide or put asunder. And so, according to Ellen White, the Passover, the whole thing, everything that the Passover relates to is a type. Uh, it was typical. And so therefore that makes it ceremonial and that makes it part of that law of types and shadows. These types, referring to the Passover as one of them, these types were fulfilled not only as to the event but as to the time. And so here's what, what it's talking about. The, the type is not just the event, it's also the time. So it's the sacrifice and the time on which the extra sacrifice is offered. And so that refers to the dates or the times of the festivals. The observance of the Passover began with the birth of the Hebrew nation. That's in the Zara of Ages. We saw that in the Bible already, right? So, so here's another challenging thought, and, and I'm going to make some challenging pointed uh, cha uh, questions here. To teach that the Passover existed before the Exodus, you are teaching contrary to the Bible and contrary to the spirit of prophecy. That's why I told you Abraham did not even know of such a thing as Passover. Neither did Lot or Joseph. It only began with the birth of the Hebrew nation. And it ended when type met anti-type in the death of Christ on the cross. So it tells you when it started. It tells you when it uh, when, how long it lasted for, when it ended. Me making it a type. A very beautiful and fitting type at that. You know, the feasts were not bad. Just because God does not require us to keep them today doesn't make them bad or bad things. They had beautiful, beautiful lessons that we can still learn from. But you don't need to keep them to learn the lessons. They have prophetic significance, of course. Not only the Passover, Feast of Tabernacles was not only commemorative, but typical. It's a type. And so if it's a type, then it's part of the law of shadows and types, also known as the ceremonial law. So according to Spirit Prophecy, the feasts were part of the ceremonial law that ended at the cross. That's why she didn't keep them. And that's why no other pioneer kept them. Uh, here's a statement that's often used. I'll, I'll go through it quickly as well. Christ was standing at the point of transition between two economies and their two great festivals. He, the spotless Lamb of God, was about to present himself as a sin offering that he would thus bring to an end the system of types and ceremonies that for 4,000 years pointed to his death. What's that system? The sacrificial system which began at Eden. That's 4,000 years. And then it goes on. 
As he ate the Passover with his disciples, he instituted in its place the service that was to be a memorial of his great sacrifice. The national festival of the Jews was to pass away forever. When did this national festival of the Jews begin? At the birth of the Hebrew nation. It was added to the system of sacrifices that began from Eden. And so with the sacrificial system coming to an end, every attachment goes. And here it tells us that this festival, the national festival of the Jews was to go. What's the root word for festival? Feast. So this is not just talking about the animal sacrifice. That's not the only thing that is canceled. The festival, that the whole thing that was packaged with it goes and is replaced by the Lord's Supper. As it says there in the end, the service which Christ established was to be observed by his followers in all lands and through all ages. So the Lord's Supper now is not tied to a location and is not tied to a specific time. You can keep it anytime, anywhere. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to do it. You don't have to be in, in Wenatchee. You can, you can do it anywhere. That's, that's what Christ instituted. You with me? Because the, the, the feasts were limited. There was a limitation on the feast. You had to physically move and go somewhere. That was symbolic. That was typical. You had to go. The reason why you had to go was you had to go where God had put his name, where God had put his presence. And it was in the temple in Jerusalem, signifying that these gatherings would bring you into the presence of God. With the new covenant, with the advent of Christ, Christ is saying, to access me, you do not go, need to go to somewhere geographical in the world. Now you can do that from anywhere and at any time. So this is the festival of the new covenant. It's not tied to a time. It's not tied to a location. Uh, here's another one. The council, that's the council of Acts 15, had on that occasion decided that the converts from the Jewish church might observe the ordinances of the Mosaic law if they chose, while those ordinances should not be made obligatory upon converts from the Gentiles. That's why Paul kept the feasts. Because he was a Jew. It was something that he may keep, as it says there. And he kept it because it was a national practice. It was a holiday. If you were keeping a holiday all your life, you grew up with this national holiday called the feast. Why, would it, why stop? But at the same time, it says here that these ordinances of the Mosaic law were not to be made obligatory upon converts from the Gentiles. Any Gentiles here today? Okay. I think that's everyone, more or less. The ordinances, one of these ordinances, brothers and sisters, is the feast days. It was not to be made obligatory upon Gentiles. No, not, not for any reason other than it served its purpose, its function. Now we're in the new covenant. And it continues, the opposing class now took, the, took advantage of this to urge a distinction between the observance of the ceremonial law and those who did not observe it, holding that the latter were further from God than the former. You know, same thing I hear today, that if you do not keep the feast days, that deprives you from certain blessings and certain privileges that God would give you if you kept the feast days. That's the same thing that happened in that council. So not much has changed. So we need to really examine the positions. And this is why I want to challenge you. If you're one of the people who keep the feast, I want to challenge you to examine the position that you hold well. Hopefully I'm giving a reasonable case as to why they do not belong in the new covenant. I'll be happy to hear if it's not so reasonable from you after. No problem. So, so don't worry. Uh, Alan White later on, of course, tells us, I'm not going to go into detail, but the camp meetings, such as this one that we're having here, is the equivalent 
of what the Jews had as the feast days. And she says, these are the appointed times that God has for his people today. It's not tied to a location and it's not tied to a particular time. We can have this camp meeting here or maybe next year we're going to have it in another location. It's not going to make a difference as to how much blessing we get. We might have it the same month. We might have it a different month. God is now going to bless his people, not based on the system of types and shadows. The reality and the light has come. And so if you want to keep the feasts today, this is what we're doing right now, all of us by attending camp meetings. That's the equivalent. Just like the statute of putting the law on your hand and in your, on your forehead is representative of having God's standard in your heart. In the same way, the feast, the how you keep them is by fellowshiping and gathering with the believers. And this is what God promised to bless. Another point that uh, I find and I heard, and I find this really strange to be honest, is the argument that the feast days was actually the secret issue in 1888. I don't know if you heard about that or not, but I have. When I first heard it, I, I, I said, what? I never heard that before. And I read some uh, studies and articles and books about it, and I was absolutely amazed, to be honest. I, I, I don't want to be rude, but I'll be honest, because this is how I really feel. It's like when you run out of evidence, you have to fabricate wishful evidence. Create evidence that does not exist. It, it's not there, brothers and sisters. What are you talking about? How can 1888 be about the feast? It's not in any way, shape, or form. Here's one reason why not. Just one sample. This is from the book, The Gospel in Galatians by Wagner. He says, You will notice, however, that the book of Deuteronomy is devoted almost entirely to moral precepts and has only one or two references to the ceremonial law, and those references are to the three annual feasts, the antitype of one of which is still in the future. As tabernacles. So according to Wagner, who was one of the preachers in 1888, they understood that the ceremonial law included the feasts. Okay, not much time, so case closed. That's it. You can't go and try and find some secret issue. He spelled it out right there. This is what they understood and believed about the feasts. So look, if you want to present a case for it, by all means, but just use evidence that is factual, that is actually convincing. But there is no such evidence. That's the thing. And this is why I find like these attempts to me tell me there is a certain desperation of trying to look for something where it, it's not even there. And people do it with good intentions by all means. But in the process, when you want to see something that's not even there, there is a certain bias and certain prejudice that might color the way you see the evidence or even present the evidence. You with me? And so let's be honest. Let's be objective about how we look at some of these things. So in, in, in light of that, this leaves the feast keeping position as something that is totally and completely of a personal, private opinion. It has no evidence in scripture as far as the new covenant is concerned. It's not part of that. It has no evidence supported in Ellen White. It has no evidence in 1888. So it's out of evidence. So that makes it totally and purely a personal opinion. So if it's your personal opinion and you want to choose to keep the feasts, I can't stop you. But you cannot share with others that it's a biblical requirement or it's something that we ought to do. There's just no evidence for that. And this is the point we really want to uh, keep in mind. And so the festivals and the feasts are something that is not supported by inspired evidence as far as the obligation to keep them. 
And I know someone out there is going to hear these words and get very offended and say, look, you're attacking us. And, and why, why are you talking about this topic? Why don't you talk about other things? And I've had people tell me that, you know, why don't you just leave us alone? Go talk about other stuff. You know, I guess a lot of Trinitarians say that to me too. You know, a lot of Trinitarians don't like what we have to say and say, why are you talking about that? Brothers and sisters, when we come to a place where we believe that God expects something from us that he does not, we are opening ourselves to error and false beliefs. Amen. So take this message as a, as a brotherly warning and a challenge to your position. If your position is true and sound, you shouldn't be worried. It should be able to handle any uh, challenge and answer it uh, accordingly, convincingly, with good evidence. But if your position is weak and needs to be re-examined, it is not wrong or shameful to say, you know what, thank you. I realize now that that did not have as much evidence as I thought. So that's why we're sharing what we're sharing. It's not to offend people, say, look, you're wrong and we're right and all that. That's, that's not the issue at all. So the, the thing is this, brothers and sisters, we're saying feastkeeping leaves the issue as totally personal optional. If that is the case, then you cannot really preach about it because there's no evidence for it, right? Some, if you want to do it at home, you want to do it privately with your family and all that, okay, but, but you can't get up and tell people it's a requirement. You can't write books about it and, and present it to people as obligatory. But this is the thing that I've found, and I've met a number of peacekeepers. All those that I've met and seen, all of them, honest, sincere people, they believe in their heart that God actually requires us to keep the feasts. That's really, at the end of the day, why they keep the feasts. More or less, something along these lines. And, uh, and I'm sure you can testify to that if, if you are such. We found that the, God does not require that in the new covenant, brothers and sisters. I have good news for you. Okay? Here's good news. We are not required to keep those shadows. I can't stop you if you want to keep doing it, like I said, but it's not something that God insists on. So uh, another reason why people uh, or how people present the feast is, say, look, it's a blessing. There's a blessing in the feasts, and, uh, and this is why we keep them. And, and the implication is that this blessing is, is exclusive, meaning you will only get it if you keep the feast. If you miss out on the feast, you're going to miss out on a blessing. And this is a really nice and appealing way to share something. Who of us does not want more blessing? So, of course, when people hear that and say, oh, of course, I want the blessing, and oh, yeah, that sounds nice, so I'll go get a blessing. Uh, I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. The feast days were not blessed by God. On what authority do you promise a blessing on something that God has not blessed? It sounds nice, it sounds promising, it sounds appealing. But God has not given that message. There's no inspired evidence for that. So on whose authority are you declaring this blessing on God's behalf? On your authority, what does that make you? A false messenger, I'll say it plainly, sorry, but it's got to be said. If you're going with a message that God has not delivered, you're a false prophet. You're saying, you, in other words, the, the idea is God will bless you. You're, you're, you're speaking on the behalf of God that he will bless you if you keep the feast. And God has said no such thing. So I know hard words, you know, but, but this has got to be said. We have to really challenge some of the things that are being said. Here is the blessing of the new covenant. Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. I know that people who gather together uh, during a feast time, there's certainly a blessing. You know what the blessing is? It's this blessing. It's the blessing that comes from fellowshipping in the name of the Lord. It doesn't come because the feast is being kept. Just like we have this blessing here today at this camp or any other camp. 
And so we need to understand what the Bible says and where these blessings come from. Every blessing of the new covenant is found in Christ and nowhere else. And so, uh, wow, we're, we're almost there. <laughs> and our time is almost up. So to summarize again, just to close here, the old covenant, the law of types and shadows, which included the feasts, was a system that was temporarily instituted until the coming of the seed, or as the scripture says, as the time of the Reformation. There is really no authority to extend that system past the point where it ended and place the feasts where God never put them. In so doing, in maintaining a shadow in the new covenant, in so doing, you are obscuring that much of the light of the new covenant. You with me? To maintain a shadow when the light has come, you are obscuring part of that light. And, and hopefully that's, that's what, why I wanted to illustrate it this way. And I know that people don't necessarily intend to do so. I know that. But this is what the theological position presents. This is what it does. It gives us, if you want to logically and be honest and look at it, this is what it looks like. And so <clears throat> we need to keep those things in mind. Our last verse, Galatians 5, 2 and 3. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. I want to replace a word there. And instead of circumcised, I will say, keep the feasts. Would that be a fair enough for a replacement? It's okay, you don't have to agree. I think it is. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you keep the feasts, Christ shall profit you nothing. Because it was also a type and a shadow. That's why. If you keep the feasts thinking that God is going to look more favorably upon you or God is going to bless you more, you have missed something called the new covenant. The blessing came in Christ. And like I said, I don't want to be rude about it. I just want to be honest about it. The next verse says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Here is the challenge. If you want to keep the law of shadows, keep the whole thing. And so long as you're keeping part and not the whole thing, that tells me there is an inconsistency. And this is the point that Paul was making to the Gentiles, to the Galatians. This is the issue that he said, listen, don't you realize that when, when you go into circumcision, you've missed something about Christ. You, Christ is not profiting you. Feast keeping does not give you more profit or more blessings, brothers and sisters. It doesn't. There is absolutely no evidence for that. There is no question there is a blessing in the fellowship. And we can have that at any time. That's not tied to a particular time or a particular location. And so this is the warning that Paul gives us. And this is the appeal I want to appeal to you with. Let us be new covenant Christians. As a new covenant, we need to put the feasts where they belong. God placed them there and said they do not go past there. We have no authority. Nobody on this earth has the authority to extend them past the point that God has put them. And I say that, you know, uh, it's a serious thing. It's a very serious thing to stand before people with no authority from God and promise blessings and enforce certain requirements that God does not expect under the new covenant. It's a very, very serious matter. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I keep them by faith. I keep the feasts by faith. You know, what, what does that mean? 
Usually that's the label that's attached to any behavior to make it, to sanitize it and sanctify it and make it good, right? When you say I, I keep by faith, you know, I'll ask you another question. Can you, can you offer sacrifices still today by faith? What would you think if, if I said, look, you know, I'm going to bring a lamb to church here. I'm going to sacrifice it, but brother, it's sister, I'm doing that by faith. What are you going to think? You don't have to tell me. You can think about it in your, in your, in your private thoughts. But this is the same thing, brother and sister, when you say a shadow, and you know, just putting a label on it by faith does not automatically make it okay. That's, that's not the idea. We need to look at the evidence. We need to look at what the scripture has said. So I, I hope that I have given you something to think about. Maybe I've uh, challenged you a little bit. I'm sure there's questions and discussion I'll be more than happy to discuss. But brothers and sisters, let's be new covenant believers. Let's live in the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, the glory of God, which is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the new covenant is all about. And so I'll leave it at that. I'll ask you to kneel with me in prayer if you can. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through his son, Jesus.